Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Steve Browett leaves a double life. He's chairman of Farbintners, one of the leading fine wine dealers in the world, in charge of an annual turnover of £100 million, and he's part owner of Crystal Palace, a football club that he's supported since he was a boy. Listen to his chat about the price of Bordeaux, where to find good value fine wines, the influence of critics, how to guard against fakes, and the BYO policy in the director's box at Selhurst Park. Hi, Steve. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm very well, thank you. Where are you? Work or at home? I am at home, sitting in my basement, uh, surrounded by my framed Crystal Palace shirts. <laughs> how many of those have you got on the wall? Quite a few. The 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 absolute best one is um, I've got Jeff Thomas's signed shirt from the 1990 FA Cup final. Wow, that's not bad, is it? Which he gave me when we sponsored his uh, Tour of France um, challenge for cure leukemia. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. what a memory. My, my pride and joy. Yeah, we will talk about Palace. We're going to talk a lot about Palace coming up later because you were born in Upper Norwood, weren't you? I mean, very close to the, to the ground to Selhurst Park. But I want to talk about wine for, to start with, really. And just tell us a bit about your, about your upbringing. I mean, were your parents wine drinkers? I mean, did you have an earliest memory of wine? Um, used to drink gin and tonic, I'm afraid, and um, the occasional bottle of um, Sainsbury South African sherry, which I think is a product that no longer exists. <laughs> and not together. <laughs> no, well, not 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 in my presence, but God knows what. No, so there wasn't really any wine um, influence at home. No, no. And do you have an early memory of wine? I mean, other than the, other than that sherry. Um, no, not not really. As as a teenager, the the first alcoholic drink I got into was beer, and I got into beer quite yeah. seriously. I I remember joining the campaign for real ale, you know, Canberra. Mm. Um, like on my 18th birthday um and um we lived just around the corner from a young's pub um mm. called the railway bell in um upper norwood and um i i used to really enjoy really get interested in the different beers and the complexities and the great thing about beer is it's very sort of democratic in that a really good pint of beer that really you know it's an interesting drink mm. is exactly the same price as an absolutely rubbish mass produced pint of beer Whereas, of yeah. course, as I learned later on in life, with with wine, you know, a, a low production, top quality wine is tens, hundreds, thousands of times the price of a basic bottle of plonk. But but with beer, the first thing I I drank, um, it, it's all you know. It's I say it's very democratic. It's all the same price. And and you still love beer, don't you? I mean, you're you're you're. You're a big beer drinker. You like you like going to pubs, and you, yeah, it's a big part of your life. It's it? a bit like wine. I only like good beer. I mean, I'd rather not yeah. drink. If beer was was a can of Foster's, I'd rather not. I'd rather have a glass of water. You know, I just um, I, I don't like that. And the same as I don't like cheap wine. It has no interest really. Uh, but yeah, I, I love beer, and because we go to all the Crystal Palace away games, so we, I go to every 
every game all over the country. It's it's always interesting to go to a town and and try the local microbrewery and uh, and and those pop up new every year. You try something new, yeah. I mean, your 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 way into the wine industry is interesting. That you know you started right at the bottom didn't you you know you didn't do that well in your a-levels you told me and you were going to go to university didn't go to university so you got a job instead and was wine your first job that job was a van driver wasn't it for la reserve in knightsbridge yeah no it was my first property i had i had in school in the last school holiday worked in a pub and and i'd done a bit of window cleaning believe it or not but um yeah i was walking down a road in knightsbridge in walton street there was a shop that had a a handwritten sign in the window saying van driver wanted and i um i walked in it happened to be a wine shop but it could have been anything shop and i had a driving license um uh which was fortunate and um and they said fine you got the job and and i drove the, they had two shops in those days so i kind of drove between the two shops drove um obviously to customers houses dropping off wine and went to the warehouse, the warehouses in Bermondsey to pick the wines up in the first place, and and I did that, and I just got interested in the subject. Really, it was amazing that people were paying, you know, lots of money for bottles of wine, and it and it helped that La Reserve. It was owned by Remington Norman, who you yeah, I do, know, I know Remington very well. Yeah, who, who became a master of wine, and then actually mm. unbecame a master of wine. But, mm. That's another story, I think. It was owned by Remington Norman, and it, and the guy that ran it was a guy called Richard Harvey Jones, who yeah, who I left remember him. Yeah. afterwards to open Seckford Wines. Yeah, um, yeah. and it was and La Reserve was was a shop that basically only sold fine French wine, mm. uh, and I found it very interesting. And uh, after a couple of years as the van driver, I, I got promoted to the dizzy heights of glass washer. <laughs> And after I'd washed the glasses co- correctly, they they then let me stack the shelves. And I think about three years after I joined, they actually let me speak to some customers. And then then I sort of became the, the junior buyer. And then I left. Yeah, and you left to join Farvinters, didn't you, in 84? Yes. What sort of company was it then? It had been set up by by Jim Farr. I mean, was it a, was it a fine wine business? Well, it sort of was. It, it was set up in, in 78 by Jim Farr and, and a couple of guys called Lindsay Hamilton and Liam McCann. And they were basically an importer of Californian wine. That, that, that was what they did. Um, they, they found Bordeaux wine uninteresting and boring. It was regarded as an old man's drink, really. Mm. And you, know, you have to remember in the early 80s, uh, what people were selling from Bordeaux was the vintages of the 70s. And they were pretty rubbish, you know. I mean, I remember in La Reserve, we were selling 68s and 69s and 72s, all these terrible vintages that that even if nature gave us the worst possible year now, you'd never have wines that bad. You know, we we had 72, 74 class gross that were sort of 5.99 in the shop. (laughs) And still undrinkable. And still undrinkable. Uh, So Bordeaux was very, very unfashionable and and as i say just seen as an old man's drink and then 82 bordeaux came along and robert parker came along and um and it suddenly changed and bordeaux actually became interesting and then at the same time the pound in the early 80s got very strong which meant that they couldn't afford to buy the california wines and make a profit anymore Mm. and at the same time people were saying oh have you got any 82 bordeaux and they knew nothing about bordeaux so they thought, who's, 
who do we know who's young and knows a bit about about Bordeaux wine? Mm. And that's why they offered me a job. And that's how I started on the back, really on the back of the 82 Clarets becoming physically available in, at the end yeah. of 1984. Yeah. So I owe it all to 82 Bordeaux. Like 82, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you were director within a year. And in 86, you bought out the company with Lindsay Hamilton, who was already there. I just wonder, you know, what was your vision then? I mean, did you suddenly think, hey, Bordeaux, this is where we're going to go. There's an opportunity here. And just to wonder, you know, 36, whatever years later, uh, how much has that changed? I mean, is that vision that you had then still the same one? Yeah, I don't think when I started I had much vision, but but as you learn about the subject and yeah, the, the incredible variety and complexity of wine, mm. uh, you know, it, it becomes more and more fascinating and you can never learn it all. You know, if, mm. every day someone talks about a wine you've never heard of, mm. even when you've been doing it for 40 years. Mm. Um so I just became more and more interested, really. But it was never, I never, I never got into it to make a lot of money. It just mm -hmm. was a fascinating subject. And, and you learned by traveling? Going to lots of tastings. Um, early on, we, we'd go to every tasting, every pre-sale auction tasting, every, every merchant tasting. Um, and and then by by traveling yeah particularly to, to bordeaux and burgundy um mm -hmm. obviously with the on primeur you'd go down to to bordeaux every every spring mm -hmm. um so that uh taught us a lot yeah I mean, what, what was the fine wine scene like in the in the 80s I and mean, that's when i started in the wine, wine trade on you know even as a journalist i mean my memories of it there were a lot more pinstripe suits around and long lunches and things like that um did you guys kind of shake things up a bit well, we we were regarded as um, you know young um, people who, who who were not really respectable. You know, we were mm. we were called brokers when the word broker was a very pejorative term. Mm. Um, and the traditional merchants. I mean, I, I remember Berry Brothers re refused refused our orders. They wouldn't sell us wine. And I think it was the same with J and B and Corny and Barrow. You know, the old school merchants didn't approve of our methods and they thought that that trading wine and making money out of wine was somehow dirty and it was a it was a gentleman's job and as you say you know if you had if you had didn't have a pinstripe suit and you weren't a member of a club then you shouldn't really be be dealing in in claret but mm -hmm. but now of course or i suppose the ultimate uh pat on the back from those people like like berries and just is they all have their own broking departments that are very much modeled on far vintners mm -hmm. um and uh you know now we've become a, a rival and a, a friendly rival and competitor whereas in the early days we were seen as uh as really uh you know not their equal if you yeah. like yeah yeah and 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 you know, was anybody else broking at the time? I mean, was it a new skill in a way? Um, there were a few, but not not really. I mean, it was quite. I wouldn't say it was easy, but we we established Far Vintners fairly quickly. Although you know, it's, it is a long time now. Mm. But um, but certainly, what the the niche that we carved for ourselves was not being traditional stockholders, where you you buy something and you sell it in five years' time. Um, which was the old way of the old merchants, 
but not being a pure broker either who who, who just trades things but but doesn't ever own anything it, mm. you know even in the early days if we tasted a wine or if robert parker gave it a good score or mm. another critic gave it a good score mm. we would be prepared to buy it so we've yeah. always been a mixture of of stockholders and traders and he, even now with farvin there's about half the wines that we sell uh they're our stock we, we've bought them and own them and yeah. the rest we sell on a commission basis for on behalf of our customers yeah interesting yeah i mean how do you stay ahead of your competition today because you know it's it's a pretty competitive business isn't it yeah it's a very very competitive business and the internet has made it very transparent and um you know there, there, there are people out there who work on tiny tiny margins and, yeah. and and you can you can create a wine business and get listed on wine searcher um on a laptop in your bedroom you know you don't mm. you don't have to have an office you don't have to mm. know anything about wine but i think what we've always tried to have is expertise about wine but also be pretty business savvy and clued up um mm. so there are some people who you know who, who are very good businessmen but they don't know about wine mm. and there are some people who I'm sure you know many examples of, who are absolute <laughs> wine experts and wine nuts, but completely mm. useless at business. Yeah. So I think I think the the thing that we've always tried and I guess been successful at mm. is being good at the business side of it, but also really knowing about wine, having the expertise in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like to say to people, I don't, you know, perhaps not true these days, but certainly it was that there isn't a wine that Fabian has lists that one of us hasn't tasted. And, yeah. and we have a team with vast experience. You know, yeah. that's the other thing. I've, I've surrounded myself with the best possible people. That, that's absolutely an important uh, part of yeah. the success of Far Vintners. I, I just wonder how the fine wine market's changed since you started at Far. I mean, is, is it still Bordeaux-focused? I mean, has the definition of a fine wine changed? Does it include the new world now? I, I think it is French wine-focused. Um Bordeaux was probably 80% of our business. Um, it's mm. now perhaps um, gone down to about 55, 60%. Mm. Burgundy, Burgundy's come up because of the high values of the wine, but they'll never, they'll never be the volumes of Burgundy uh, mm. that Bordeaux's got. You know, they, they just don't make thousands of, of cases of each wine. Mm. So Burgundy's always limited. Um, and it, and it, it will never be as big as Bordeaux for us. Then, of course, the Rhone, Champagne, but but yes, the New World wines. The, there are the sort of cream of the New World wines, which have become re- regarded in the same light as as first growth Bordeaux, mm. which you know obviously you you know what they are. But you, your Opus One and Dominus and so on from California, your your um, Vega Sicilia and Pingus yeah. from Spain. Um, and Grange, maybe, from Australia. Grange from Australia. Grange, yeah. so. um, obviously, mm. the super Tuscans like Sassicar and so yeah. top, mm. top Barolas. And, and yes, these things are now regarded as fine wine and collectibles. Yeah. But France is still king and uh, and the crown is, is still is still, the it's still Bordeaux. Bordeaux. So yeah. fine wine, is it collectible wine, would you say? Um. I think to be called a fine wine, obviously the, the quality has to be there. It has to be mm. serious quality and it has to be something that people aspire to purchase and want mm. to own and are prepared to buy and, and let it mature and drink it later. If mm. anything's just instantly quaffable the day it's it's released, 
it's not really a fine wine. Yeah, in- interesting. Um, and what about prices? I mean, you, you're old enough, and so am I, to remember some of the prices that you know you were talking about the first coast carrots and the prices they were selling for in the eighties. Yeah. And it's comparatively cheap then to buy fine wine, and that's not really the case in most industries now, is it? Why did that change? Do you think is it just just demand? Yeah, the, the, there's certainly more demand around and around the world as well. I think you know, I think when we started off, it was basically the UK and the US were mm. were the main export markets for fine wine. Um, I think the Swiss and the Germans and the Belgians were buying a bit, but but now um, it's very much a global thing, and and uh, the Asian market is the most important market. We sell. 40% of all the wine that we sell it goes to Hong Kong. Wow. And, to, to, yeah. and Hong Kong is the hub for the rest of Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are they are obsessed with quality and that they want the best all the time and, and they're mm-hmm. prepared to pay for it. Because, I mean, you were the first people to open an office, a London merchant, to open an office in Hong Kong. I think it was in 1995, wasn't it? I mean, you just said that's a really important market for you. Was it the dropping yeah. of the duty there, the zero duty on wine, that changed the global fine wine market in a way, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, it, in in a way, it helped that they had, I think there was 80% import tax when we started yeah. up in Hong Kong. So it helped that wine had been perceived as this incredibly expensive luxury that they couldn't afford. And then suddenly all the tax went off. Um, the, 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 there isn't any sales tax in, in Hong Kong, you know, no mm. VAT. So um, when they got rid of duty, it meant that the whole of Hong Kong was absolutely tax-free on wine. It just mm. became one duty-free shop. Um, mm. And they also had, a, a because of the wine being so expensive, they had a, a BYO acceptance in restaurants. Mm. And so people were suddenly able to buy wine so much cheaper than it had been mm. and uh take it to restaurants and drink it mm. and uh and the the fine wine boom really as you say it really started when the duty was lifted um and that that was a massive thing yeah so i mean it was the right call by you guys I and mean, did it seem like a risk at the time opening that office yeah at the, at the time people said well what's the point of of having an office in hong kong but but we we already had had customers in Hong Kong and Singapore, to be fair, who who knew about wine. Often people who'd been educated in, in in the UK, you know, they'd gone to boarding school or university in the UK and then learnt about wine. Um, and these people wanted wine and they started buying it, but but storing it in the UK. And the, yeah. but they didn't really ship it back home because of the taxes. Mm. Uh, and we knew we knew there was interest and we knew there was money. And of course, as I say, when the tax went off, um, it, it was uh, it boom, went crazy. Right? boom, <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah, boom. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you something else about about pricing. I mean, uh, just are there regions that offer better value for money than others? Um, are any of those in the new world? I mean, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the expensive wine wines are expensive based on quality, um, sure, but they're also expensive based on rarity and. Mm. You know, some wines, some of the most expensive wines, that they really are expensive just because they're rare and mm. just because they're fashionable. You know, a, a, a yeah. bottle of, of Romani Conti that is worth, on release, thousands of thousands of pounds a bottle wouldn't mm. be that price. I mean, it's great wine, but it wouldn't be that price if they, if they, 
if they made more than the 5,000 bottles a year that, that they make. Yeah. Same with Le Pan in, in Pommel. Yeah. You know, Le Pan is a gorgeous wine, but it's um, many, many times the price of Vieux Chateau Certain, mm. which is the same owners. But mm. but with Vieux Chateau Certain, they make 5,000 cases a year. With yeah. Le Pan, they make uh, 500. Yeah. Um, so it's the rarity. And and, and then there's, the, there's fashion. You know, people don't get German Riesling, for example. Mm. So, um, you know, you can have a top quality Mosul spate laser from one of the best producers that's cost cost 10 pounds and it's mad. Yeah. It's, it's the, there are some wines that are so cheap and undervalued. And similarly, there are, there are wines that are so expensive and overvalued. So, I mean, my advice, if you're a wine lover on a budget is to is to drink German Riesling and vintage port, probably, you know, those are the, <laughs> and sherry oh, and, 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 and sherry and, and Sauterne. I mean, Sauterne <laughs> is unbelievable. People, people yeah. are giving Sauterne away. There's, um, <laughs> you know, they we're selling, we're, we're, we're selling top quality Sauterne um, that's the equivalent of a, of a first growth. Yeah. Um, and if, if it were red, it would be 20 times the price. Yeah, but but you can buy you can buy a great Sauterne that's fifteen mm. or twenty years old for about twenty quid, whereas mm. if it was a great red wine, it would be two hundred quid. I mean, what about investment? I mean, some people see wine as an investment vehicle, as they call it, and there are definitely yeah. returns to be made. You know, sometimes by luck, but also by judgment and by access to the right wines. I mean, what do you feel about wine as an investment vehicle? I mean, it's not something you do much of, is it? You didn't get into it to, yeah. Well, yeah, to make money yeah, out of it. No, but but um, any, anyone who buys a wine when it's young with the plan to drink it when it's mature mm. is investing in wine. You know, that mm. you are making an investment. You, you might not be planning to, to turn that, that into a profit and sell it. You, you mm. might just be thinking, well, I'll be able to, to drink it when it's mature, having paid the, the, the cheaper price when it's immature, but that's still an mm. investment. And most of our customers they buy wine for the future mm. in fact if if you want if you want great wine you you can't you can't really buy the wine when it's ready to drink because it's mm. not commercially available or much harder to buy so if you buy wine on primeur or soon after it's released you you know you've got a 10 year period until it's ready to drink mm. and that's an investment and and a lot of people buy more than they need because they can then sell some to finance buying some more or finance the drinking and um, other people buy mainly to make money out of it. And as long as you mm. buy wisely and from a respectable merchant store it under bond, so you don't pay any taxes um, and sell at the right time, you know, it is a pretty reasonable way of making money whilst enjoying what, what is a hobby and it, and it's tax free as well, which, which people yeah. like. But I suppose you, you might not make the returns you did. I mean, things like vintages like 2009, 2010 in, in Bordeaux, which were high-priced vintages, the prices haven't necessarily gone up since in a lot of cases, have they? Um, so can you still make the, the returns you would have made in the old days or not? Well, probably not, because the release prices are not, you know, are much higher than they used to be. Mm. But 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 certainly you, you, you can. I mean, 2019 Bordeaux, a pretty recent vintage, was released at very reasonable prices, and mm. some of those have gone up fifty percent already. Yeah. So uh, you you can yeah, but you can also you can also make a mistake. You know, if you yeah. 
if you invest in the in the wrong vintage or or, or one that uh, you know if you invested in wines that P- Robert Parker loved, it's now starting mm. to not look like such a good idea because because the new critics who are important don't tend to like mm. those kind of wines. So mm. y- you you shouldn't buy just on fashion and, and, and on one person's opinion because mm. those things can change. Tell us about about wine critics in the fine world, wine world. I mean, just how important they are. And I just wonder. And I think the answer to this is yes. Have you ever listed and sold a wine that's had poor scores or reviews that you like, and you think, "Hey, we like this. We're going to we're going to list it anyway." And you've mentioned Parker anyway, and Parker coincided with you joining Farvinters really uh, in in the mid eighties, early to mid eighties. How important are critics? Do you think to this fine wine world, the validation of critics? I think I think it's still very important, uh, but I think it's very good now that there is a, a spread of, of critics. I mean, it used to be yeah. fairly crazy that one man was the arbiter of what was good. Yeah. And he, in the old days, even if we loved something, if Parker gave it 79 out of 100, you wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Well, you couldn't sell uh, it? No, you couldn't sell it. No. Um, you could yeah. drink it. <laughs> you could say, God, this is such good value. Um <laughs> And we used to specialise in, in drinking wines that either had damaged labels or that Parker didn't like <laughs> because they were cheap. <laughs> it's, it, 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 you know, if you don't want to spend much money, find a wine that critics hate but you like and it will be good value. But but now, yeah. as I say, you, you, you've you got, you know, lots of, of, of critics out there and William Kelly, Neil Martin, um, Jane Anson, uh, Galoni, you and the other English guys, you know, yeah. there, there's a whole choice of critics that, that people can, can listen to. It, it it was made it easy in the old days. You know, if Parker gave mm. it 100, we'd just buy it as much as we could and then mm. everyone would want it. Mm. But now it's different and that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I think it is too. I mean, do you, do you think his influence was benign in the end on balance? I mean, when he started off, um, people were selling... Bordeaux wine based almost entirely on the reputation and the quality was pretty rubbish mm. you know uh, because there weren't you know there, there weren't critics in influencing the market and um chateaus could get away with producing pretty poor quality wines and then when when they suddenly had to when they were being scored because he was really the first person to to, to score wine yeah. Um, when they were being scored, that they, they realised they had to pull their socks up. So mm. he, you know, he really made people realise that they had to improve their quality, and that was a really good thing. But then yeah. towards the end, when when quality had gone up a lot, people started making wine to the Parker recipe to try and get higher scores, mm. and that's when it went a bit sour, I think, because mm. you know he he has personal opinions on what makes a good wine, and he likes high alcohol. Mm. black colour, mm. concentration, mm. Uh, sweetness and late picking, which, you know, other people probably don't, and quite rightly, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah I but, think you're uh, right. But, yeah, he, he, he definitely was 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 good at the start, but, but mm. I think not his fault. He became too powerful. But that's the fault of the people who followed him rather than... I, I think that's himself. true. Tell, tell me a little bit about... about um, Fake. So you know, you've talked about buying from reputable sources, and you know, wine has become a luxury good. And and once something is a luxury good, people are always going to fake it, basically, aren't they? Um, yeah. How do you guard against that as a business? You know, if somebody's offering you some wine from a cellar somewhere, I mean, how 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 can you do a 
you know, a, a check on them, basically. Well, we we don't buy wine from people we don't know. Yeah. For a start. We wouldn't. If a stranger approached us and said, I've got some wine and I, I want you to pay cash for it, we'd just say no. We, we, we don't pay cash. We, we only pay for wine after we've examined it. Yeah. And the people in our warehouse who examine it have been doing it for years so they know what they're looking for. So I think a faker will probably not come to a, a, a reputable merchant like us mm. because they, they know they're not going to get the money up front. We're going to reject the stock if we don't like the look of it. Mm. And, and we've got, you know, we've got very high standards and, and quality con- mm. control. We, we, we generally only buy wine in bond. And it's, mm. it's very hard to put a fake wine into a bonded warehouse because yeah. they're all, you know, the, the, the bond is under the control of the, the government. Um, so if you avoid dodgy dealers, cash and wines that are duty paid, um, you'd probably eliminate most fake wine. And um, to be honest, we haven't had seen a fake bottle for, for years at Far Vintners. Mm. But there's quite a bit in the market, isn't there? I mean, I'm told. Um, I don't, I I don't think in the UK that, 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 that there is. I mean, there's obviously the Rudy scandal in the States mm. that, that was pretty terrible. Rudy Kinnon, um, yeah. And uh, we have never bought a bottle of wine from that particular auction house, and yeah. we never will. Um, yeah. Mentioning no names, but um, you know, we 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 are very very careful about where we buy, and that that's really the the, the only way to, to to control it. But it, I don't think it is a big issue for the wine trade these days. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder in places like China. I mean, I think some, as you said, mentioned auction houses. Oh, yeah, I think it's not always yeah. easy to find out, you know, the provenance of a wine that you might be buying. I mean, you know, you you, you, you need to look at labels very carefully. I think, don't you? Yeah, no, I'm sure in China there's lots of fake wine because mm. because there's people who don't know what they're buying. But um, you know, and part part of the reason why the the you know the the Chinese market, the Asian market in general, is very good for the likes of us is because mm. they don't the people who want to buy the wine, they don't want to buy it locally because they don't trust a, they don't trust the storage because obviously yeah. you know, it tends to be hot places mm. uh, and B, they don't trust the provenance of the stock that's circulating around in their country. So they'd mm. much rather buy in the UK with our, you know, our expertise is well known, the British wine trade in general and yeah. the fact that we all store in bonded warehouses that are, either underground or temperature controlled or got thick stone walls or, um, yeah. you, you know, they are professionally, professionally stored wines that uh, you can't, you can't just walk in and out of a bonded warehouse with fake wine. No, no. <laughs> I think that would be difficult, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't think that the, the, the inspectors would like that. Let, let's talk a little bit about football now, because that's a very important part of your life. And you, you've been a uh, Crystal Palace supporter, I think, since the late 60s, 69 or something like that. And amazingly, this story that in 2010, you and three other super fans, you, you bought the club, right? I mean, you own 25% yeah, yeah. of the Crystal Palace. How did yeah, that no, come about? In, in, in the middle of the... In the middle of the 2009 Bordeaux on Primeur campaign, which was the most successful on Primeur campaign ever in the history of Farbintners by a mile, uh, you know, and we made a lot of money in 09 on Primeur. Um, Crystal Palace went bust, basically. And, and they said, you know, are there any fans out there who can come in and help save the club? And, 
and I was thinking, oh, they must mean rich people. <laughs> but, but, but then, you know, it was just fortunate that, that we'd made some, some money that year. And as a fan with four boys, and, I, you know, that's the only time I see all my kids together is going to football. Um, and having done it all my life, I thought we can't let Crystal Palace go bust because there are tens of hundreds of thousands of people from South London who identify yeah. with this football club. Mm. And um, if I can do something to help, I, I ought to. So um, sort of four of us like-minded people, uh, Martin Long, who was in insurance, um, he was Churchill Insurance, um, that he sponsored the shirt you can see behind me, um, <laughs> and uh, Steve Parrish, who was in advertising, and Jeremy Hosking in finance. So four of us from, from, from different worlds, we got together and, and in June 2010, we... We bought the club on a handshake, the four of us, the club and the stadium, and uh, we haven't looked back really. It's been a it's been an amazing success story. I mean, obviously, yeah, you took it back to the Premiership and everything. Yeah, yeah, we, we got back to the Premier League um, three years later in two thousand and thirteen, and we've never been relegated since. Um, we went from a, a team of um, pretty useless players um, where we hardly had any players. Um, and we just got free transfers and young players in. And now we've got a team full of fantastic superstars. Um, uh, we, we, we've had two, three players recently play for England in, in our mm. squad. Mm. I mean, almost all our players are internationals now. So, mm. you know, touch wood, it, it's just been an amazing success. Whereas, and it's luck really, but, mm. you know, whereas some people who bought football clubs, um, the guy who bought Derby has mm. lost tens and tens of millions um you know there are so many examples of people who bought their local football club and it's been a disaster for them there are probably more examples like that than the palace one right yeah oh yeah there's much more examples of failure i mean yeah. when we bought palace everyone said i was mad and what yeah. on earth was i doing you know about wine don't don't, don't <laughs> they do said this. he's made too much money from the 2009 bordeaux <laughs> yeah exactly but the only person who said to me do it was my wife and Sophie said to me, listen, I know you love Palace. I know you love Palace more than you love me. That's all right. <laughs> you know, you loved Palace before I came along. Um, I know you go there every week with the kids. If you've got to do it, you've got to do it. Yeah. And she was very cool about it. And um, unfortunately, it didn't go wrong. And we didn't get evicted from our house and uh, lose everything. Uh, so no, it's, it's been fantastic, and apart from being successful, it's been incredibly enjoyable. Uh, and yeah, it's a big part we, of your life, isn't it? Yeah, that's it's a big part of my life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what makes a successful football club, and is it the same thing that makes a successful wine business? Are there similarities between them? I think there's probably with sport, there's more luck. Um, you know, with with a wine business, it, it's down to to expertise really, and buying the right wines having the right wines that people want, mm. having good customers, which you get by looking after your customers and being every customer of Farbinders is word of mouth from another customer. Mm. With with football, you need to employ the right people. You need to employ a good manager, a, a sporting director, scouts who do sort you know, who source the players. Mm. You need to have good people at the club looking after the players and you need to have finally good players uh, who perform well. But you also, there is quite a lot of luck involved. Mm. Um, One bad know, refereeing if, decision or something. If a, if a player mm. called Joel Ward mm. hadn't cleared 
um, a Watford shot off the line in the last minute of injury time at Wembley Stadium in 2013, Palace wouldn't have been promoted to the Premier League. Yeah. Uh, so um, we, we owe Joel Ward a lot for that for that header. <laughs> uh, but if Wilfred if Wilfred Zaha hadn't hadn't been tripped up, we wouldn't have got the penalty. And if Kevin Phillips hadn't scored that penalty, you know, there yeah. are all these things that that are very, you know, tiny margins in in sport that 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 go from from success to failure. And I always say, you know, when fans come away from a match. If you've won by a lucky goal that went off somebody's backside, mm. uh, people will say, oh, we were brilliant today. And if you played really well but just had no luck, people say, oh, we we're rubbish today. So it's, <laughs> sport, sport is so exciting because it's unpredictable um, and, and you never know what's going to happen. And yeah. th that's what makes it interesting to me. I think that's true. Listen, final question. Um, Football obviously is one way you find of relaxing, or that's not that relaxing for the reasons you just told us. Sometimes it can be very stressful. <laughs> exactly, very stressful, can't it? I mean, what else do you do to get away from wine? I know you're a big pub quiz person. You like beer. Um, are you do a bit of sport? Don't you? you play? You play tennis? Yeah, I'm. I'm a big tennis. I'm very bad at tennis, but but I play it uh, consistently badly. I I play tennis about four regularly. or five. Yeah, I play four or five times a week. Uh, and there's a, there's a group of us at a tennis club all about m my age and we have a really good time. Um, the, the standard is not very high, but, but tennis, particularly doubles, is just a really enjoyable game. Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of, a lot of tennis. Um, mm. that, that's my main physical activity, yeah. And just one last thing, because you are a big pub quiz man. What yes. would your specialist subject be on Mastermind? It'd have to be Bordeaux, wouldn't it? Or would it be Palace? Oh, it can be Crystal Palace football club it can be um it, it can be the wines of bordeaux i suppose i suppose it's got to be one of those two yeah <laughs> okay well you know if you ever have time i can't believe you will have time i think you do pretty well actually yeah <laughs> oh, yeah probably would yeah. steve thank you for sharing your amazing journey from you know van driver to a man running the most successful fine wine merchants or brokers in the world really and that's not a bad that's not a bad career trajectory is it no it's, it's been all right <laughs> been lucky <laughs> <laughs> And you get to watch your own football team. You actually own part yes, of the team. in a nice seat on the halfway line. Yeah, there you go. What do you drink in the, in the director's box? Uh, well, we have our own Eagle Wines at, at, at Palace, um, but I, um, I I have a BYO policy at, at, at Selhurst Park. So um, it depends on who the opposition are, but um, we've got Manchester United in the next game. So if, if Sir Alex is coming, I'll probably be serving some very very serious Bordeaux but um, not mentioning any names if certain other clubs come who don't really know anything about wine they'll they'll get the Bergerac and be happy with it <laughs> okay that's brilliant thanks Steve it's been great talking okay cheers Tim bye well I wonder if Sir Alex Ferguson turned up to the match and if he did what he drank with Steve next week on Cork Talk my guest is Viviana Navaretti from Vigna Leda in Chile join us then thanks for listening to Cork Talk if you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.